Stars of String observing reports on episode 320 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris and joining me is Shane. And this podcast is for anybody else who likes going out under the stars of spring and looking at the night sky. Finally, our weather has warmed up. Shane, holy smokes, that was a bad run of cold weather. <laughs> yeah, it sure was. But last night was wonderful. In fact, lately, uh, the last week or two have been really quite nice and Everything uh, kind of was coordinated last night in terms of good weather, clear skies, and uh, just a nice opportunity to get out and do some observing. Yeah. A week and a half ago, I had my class out. We were looking at Mercury, and the Mercury sure was dropping that night. I was feeling pretty cold while I was doing my session with the class. That night, the temperature dipped to minus 26 degrees Celsius. So that's how cold it was recently. Last night, the temperature dipped to only minus two degrees Celsius. So that felt darn right balmy. I wasn't even observing with gloves on at that temperature. <laughs> yeah, I didn't have gloves on at all last night. And I put on my heated jacket, but I never turned it on. It just wasn't needed. It was uh, it was quite nice. And you know, some people listening to this probably think we're insane. But <laughs> when you get used to the colder temps, uh, minus two actually seems like a beach day. Yeah, it does. Most of my observing was done at uh, plus two degrees Celsius, but you just don't need the gloves at that temperature once uh, once you've been out in like the minus twenty range. <laughs> just mm -hmm. that's just so brutally cold that uh, you just get used to it. And then once it is much much warmer, when it's twenty degrees warmer or twenty two degrees warmer, in my case last night, it just felt uh, felt really nice. Had my first stay over at my dark sky cabin last night. It was. Uh, yeah, it was pretty nice to be back out there and set up and doing long sessions again. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, maybe before we get into last night's observing, because I think that's the real uh, interest for both of us, just curious about your recent Mercury observations and just anything to report there, or was it sort of uninspiring <laughs> because it's because it's Mercury? Saw it several times. Yeah. Didn't really get a good uh, view. Unfortunately, just things were kind of stacked against me uh getting the any sort of sketch or observation and it did some sketching of venus but i just couldn't get one of mercury where it was placed i could see it from my front driveway mm -hmm. fortunately it was just like a few degrees over all the houses uh many many roofs and so it was just boiling away and, mm -hmm. uh, and nothing could be seen unfortunately yeah. I just had uh, three visual observations of Mercury. I didn't put optics on it. I never tried largely because of the cold temperatures and a little bit because I just wasn't convinced I would uh, really see much anyway. <laughs> so not a, I should probably be a little more hopeful and, uh, you know, take some optics out and see what I can see. But now that it's warming up, I think I'll, I'll try it if, if the opportunity presents. My biggest success with Mercury, though, wasn't uh, in my observations of it. I've, I've certainly seen it many times prior. My big success was getting my class out to observe it. So I had around 23 or 24 people looking at Mercury one night, sort of all lined up on a pretty cold evening. I was able to find it from the city. I, my class was able to just look over some treetops and we had a pretty good sighting of it for about uh, 20 or 30 minutes. And I ushered everybody through and everybody had a peek at Mercury through the telescope. They could see it with their unaided eye. And that was really neat because most people had been aware that it would be visible just because of a lot of the media posts on um, all the planets that were visible. However, seeing all the planets and in particular seeing Mercury 
you really need to know where to look and sort of how to do it and having somebody to guide people and to show them that this indeed was uh, the target that we were after. And then uh, cycle everybody through for another view of Venus too was uh, a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, so moving on, we were yeah. both actually doing some observing last night, although, uh, we were not together. Who do you want to go first or doesn't really matter to me? I'm just happy to have been out. Um, very tired. People should know I observed till midnight. Then I was like, so tired. I'm going to bed and I could not get to sleep. So I ended up getting back up at 2am. I went out, took another cruise around just with my eye. And then I packed up my gear at uh, about 2.30 in the morning and went back to sleep until got up and frantically drove in here and did a recording with you and uh, Howard we just got off with. I, I decided to to stay in my backyard and the primary reason for that, you know, I just, I recently got those, uh, the Nexus digital setting circles. Uh, I think they came in November, December timeframe. Yeah. And uh, as such, I haven't really been able to use them. I, I had one quick session just to try them out and was very impressed. But uh, because I don't have a lot of experience with those, I really wanted to just play around in the backyard. Uh, so if I had to turn on a you know a brighter light or do any sort of I don't know reconfiguring of the gear, you know being at home just makes that a lot easier and and then certainly less disruptive to say you or Mike at a dark site if I had to turn on a bright light. Um, so my plan for the night was just double stars and I stuck with the uh, RASC double star observing list. Um, what I looked at was, uh, three different or sorry, five different, uh, um, sets of doubles. Uh, I started with links and, uh, there's three there, uh, 19 links, uh, HD seven, five, three, five, three, and then the alpha links star, uh, as well. Uh, that's another double. It was a lot of fun. And I'll say the Nexus digital setting circles uh, not only is it a bit of a cheat code because it does make finding things just so easy, but like links is pretty much its zenith right now for us. At least when I was observing last night, you know, around kind of in that eight till eleven ish time frame. You know, anybody who's tried to point a telescope at zenith knows that it's sort of a challenge to to move the telescope around and star hop. Just it, just the mechanics are weird. It, it, it's not a fun, intuitive experience. Um, but with the, with the digital setting circles, it was just so easy to locate, you know, these doubles, uh, which was quite, uh, you know, I guess I wasn't really thinking about that when I purchased the setting circles. Mm -hmm. Uh, so kind of an unintended, uh, benefit. I don't, I don't mean to interrupt you, but I know we're just kind of winging this folks. Um, we decided that we were just going to do one on what we were observing since we were at observing. Did you have any big challenges with the uh, digital setting circles? Zero. The one thing I did learn though, Chris, and, and, you know, when I first talked about these things, I said something incorrectly. Uh, I said, when you're doing your alignment, you don't have to worry about leveling your tripod. And that's sort of true, but not really accurate. Um, so last night I did not level my tripod. I did the two-star alignment. I was using my TSA 102 for the first few doubles. It was pretty accurate. But then when I swept over to Ursa Major, I noticed that it was probably just under a degree off from putting it. Like, we're using small scopes with wide fields of view. You got three degree field of view in your telescope. So yeah, no, for sure. Um, what, what kind of annoyed me about that was I was uh, trying to just keep 12 millimeter orthos in the, oh, <laughs> the bino viewer. Oh, gee. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. So I was restricting my field of view. 
I think if I would have actually taken the time to level my tripod, I suspect the accuracy would have been much better. Um, I did have a, like a reticle eyepiece to do the initial alignment. So I think my alignment was pretty close. Um, but other than that, no issues. Uh, the one other thing I will say is I left the telescope and the setting circles and everything out for gosh, I would say about two and a half hours uh, before I actually started observing just so it could, uh, acclimatize. And when I turned on the setting circles, I was a little worried because the battery percentage said zero. <laughs> so I thought, oh, this might be short lived. And, you know, a battery will sort of lose some of its uh, capacity in a way when, once it gets really cold. And I think that maybe is what was happening, but I was out for, you know, I'd say two or three hours and there was no issue. Uh, the setting circles worked. So not sure what that was all about. Maybe just a a weird reading, but no issues. They, they work great. And, and I found every object. The other thing that maybe I'll mention before I get into some of the actual observation notes is I, I think you had asked me when we were first talking about these things on uh, a podcast a long time ago. Now um, you asked if I would still like bring out a, a star Atlas with me. Mm. And, and I said, I don't think so. Like, you know, the setting circles are going to point to the object you know, every time. And I'm, you know, then I look and observe it and kind of move on to the next one. And what ended up happening, uh, I think with the first double that I was trying to observe was, uh, I went inside and grabbed my star chart, my sky Atlas, because the double that I was searching for was a, a fairly tight double. It was, I think 3.3, uh, arc, I think it was arc seconds apart actually. Mm. And, uh, so, you know, at low magnification, you're not really going to probably pick that out very easily. So I thought I better get my star chart just to confirm the field, first of all, and then to determine of all of the stars I'm seeing, cause it was a somewhat rich star field, you know, which one should be the double. And then I would put some power on it. Um, so I, I actually ended up doing that a couple of times last night, uh, referencing the star chart, uh, just to, you know, locate which double, uh, or which you know, point of light was the system that I wanted to observe two amendments to my earlier statements about the setting circles. Number one, level the tripod. <laughs> Number two, I'm still bringing a star chart with me. I just am likely not referencing it as often. Uh, maybe just to get on to some of the observations. What did you look at? Uh, so the first one here was uh, 19 links. It was a fairly easy split. I started with 25 millimeter microscope eyepieces. So these are those Zeiss Opmi's uh, OPMI. They're quite a nice eyepiece. I, I really like them. The field of view isn't huge. It's I think like maybe 55 degrees, uh, but they're, they're great in the bino viewer. Anyway, easy split with those. I switched to the 12 millimeter orthos and uh, felt that the companion had a bit of a blue tone while the primary maybe was more white, uh, but they were pretty similar magnitude. Companion was a little bit fainter. After that, I moved on to uh, HD 75353. What's interesting here, if I read RASC's notes properly here, they had they give a millimeter uh, sort of recommendation for the suggested telescope aperture to observe the object. So this one, uh, they list at 150 millimeters, so a six-inch telescope, and I'm observing with a four-inch telescope. And uh, so I was wondering, you know, what am I getting myself into here? <laughs> um, so I, I started off with the 25 millimeter eyepieces, located it, what I, th what I thought was the, the system, but I couldn't see any split, but it looked like kind of a, like, like it wasn't a star point. It was almost like a, 
elongated star. So I was, I was thinking that I, you know, that I had at least identified the system, but I, you know, was unable to split it at that magnification. Um, so I switched to the 12 millimeter, uh, orthos and, uh, was a pretty easy split there. And, uh, yeah, I think the separation is 3.5 is what sky safari lists. Um, fairly similar magnitudes. The primary was yellow, although it, it wasn't like super apparent, you know, I did spend a little bit of time observing this one. Uh, definitely could tell it wasn't a white star, but anyway, it, it was a fun split. I, I really like the the close doubles that are kind of challenging and, and test the sky conditions and also test the optics a little bit. Having this right overhead at Zenith is the, you know, the cleanest part of the sky. So that probably helped a little bit in achieving that split. Next one then was um, the Alpha Lynx or the Alpha Star in that constellation. And this one was pretty wide. Separation was like 233. So very easy split with the uh, 25 millimeter. But the interesting aspect here of these two was that the primary magnitude, I think, is like 3.3 and the companion was 8.2. So quite a variance and uh, an interesting pair. With this uh, RESC list, there's like... Uh, basically the checklist, which gives you like RA declination, uh, what constellation and, and just, uh, like the identifiers for the system. Um, there's another PDF that provides like, well, observing notes essentially of what you can see. And I want to go back to this 19 links or sorry. Um, well actually 19 links as well as alpha, because there's three, there's three stars in the Alpha Lynx uh, system, and then in 19 Lynx, there's uh, there's four stars uh, within that system of varying magnitudes and uh, separation distances. I guess I wasn't even really looking for those, and that's a miss on my part. So I, I definitely want to go back, and you know, I think next time I'm out observing some of these doubles, I'll remember to take this uh, this additional list for some of those notes, just so I don't miss some of those opportunities. So that was it in links. And then I moved over to Ursa Major. Uh, there was two there that I uh, knocked off this list, uh, HR4363. Uh, so these ones here were quite close, but uh, with the 25 millimeter, I was still able to split them. Both stars were similar magnitude, although what was neat about this system is the companion uh, definitely had a blue tone to it while the primary uh, was a, a, a very apparent white star. So I, I always love those color contrasts. And, you know, it's it's one of the pretty aspects of these multi-star systems. And then the last one was uh, HD10054. So these ones were kind of similar to the previous pair, except they sort of look like headlights because both stars are white, both stars were similar magnitude and somewhat close uh, distance to each other. So uh, kind of kind of pretty for for their symmetry i guess between them to circle back to the uh the setting circles one thing that i really appreciated was i i like what you did there i like <laughs> <laughs> was uh what i really appreciated was i found the objects so quickly that i was able to really spend some time observing the objects you know in the past i'd spend a lot of time especially for some of these doubles, uh, you know, it, it sometimes it takes a few attempts to locate the right star field. So because I was on the object right away, I spent a lot more time just looking at them and then trying some different eyepieces and different magnifications just to see, you know, what I could pick out, you know, again, real benefit of, of using those. I, I did play around a little bit, like to try to see M51 and some other deep sky objects, but the, the light pollution was just too much to make that a, a real 
proper go. So I abandoned that and, and just stuck with the, uh, the double stars. Um, so it was fun. The other thing I found out too, I mentioned to you, Chris, I was piggybacking the mini Borg 50 on the TSA. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It was with the Bino viewer. It was just too much weight. And like I, I had it balanced properly on the M2C mount, mm-hmm. but it still made like the altitude movement, just not fun. It, 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 there was a little bit of backlash and there was, it was just not good. So I removed the 50 millimeter, uh, and just observed without it. And once I did that, the motion and everything was so much improved. So that experiment, uh, didn't last long and I won't repeat it. It just isn't going mm. to work. That's too bad. Yeah. Yeah. But, oh, well, hey, I got a question about double stars for, I feel like this maybe is one that you, you split. I didn't split this last night, but I, I almost did. We just got frustrated. We were looking for something else, but did you ever split propus there, uh, at a gem- geminorum? Hmm. I'd have to look I, that one doesn't stand out for me. Um, yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a bright star. It's like, you know, around 3.5 magnitude. The mm-hmm. companion is sixth. Okay. And I think the separation is decent. I would, I would just be curious. I don't know. This is just one of those stars that, you know, Mike, uh, likes to observe. Yeah. We were just taking a look at it last night. Cause we were sort of in in and around that region of the sky so so yeah hey did you see the email from berta here this morning just in regards to an approach for like preparing for an observing session the carbon stars yeah oh yes the carbon stars uh i did see that briefly yep do you remember sorry i put the bit about the carbon stars in Uh, what was she saying about the prepping for the observing session do you recall that yeah so like i think just a few episodes ago i was probably complaining a little bit about my, one of my barriers to observing was the preparation to observe, uh, you know, marking up my star atlas, um, you know, figuring out what I want to observe. And, uh, what she said is her approach is just to use a, like a sky, like use sky safari on her tablet and, and brings the tablet to the eyepiece and dims it and does all of that kind of stuff. And then, you know, adjusts limiting magnitude so that she can match what she sees from her light polluted sky, or if she goes to a dark sky, you know, kind of matches it to that sky mm-hmm. and uh, finds it to be a really good aid to, um, I guess, just help her accomplish her observing for, you know, any given evening. Um, so certainly a, a great approach, um, you know, different than, than what I'm doing and, I'll be honest. I'm a little nervous with a tablet. I've, I've dropped a couple of eyepieces in my life, oh. uh, you know, inadvertently and thank goodness, nothing, you know, was, was, uh, no, nothing bad came of it, but, uh, yeah. you know, a tablet is, I think a far more delicate item than, uh, than an eyepiece. And if I ever dropped my tablet, I'd be quite upset. So, <laughs> so I might just stick with paper. I don't know. I only ever dropped two things. One was my, I think it was my O3 filter. The first two inch O3 filter I ever bought. I took it out of its case in the field for the first time <laughs> case stuck, you know, sometimes like a case oh, yeah. the first time and it went flying out of the case onto a gravel road and took a chip out of it before I ever even looked through it. Oh, that's a heartbreaker. Well, yeah, it actually didn't impact. It was like way outside the, the regular field of view, but still actually Eric has, has that uh, filter right now. We got to get him on here in a few weeks. The other was just this winter when I was observing. And fortunately I was observing in, <laughs> about a foot of snow and I dropped my Masayama, but it got a little bit of snow on it. It didn't really matter. It was well cushioned. It never mm-hmm. did anything hard. <laughs> it just hit lots of snow on the way down. <laughs> yeah. 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 
Yeah, it's a risk. Uh, it can happen. And, you know, especially when you're tired and your, your brain isn't working quite right, uh, all sorts yep. of bad things can go. The other thing in Berta's email, she talked about working on a carbon star program. I'm on a low carbon star diet myself, but uh, <laughs> I try to give this a go. I guess in the pocket atlas, this is the uh, pocket atlas from, from Sky and Telescope. We've recommended this quite a bit in the past. It's got 60 red carbon stars in there. And then I was wondering, because I think Rakusiak's list of 60 carbon stars in the observer's handbook, I wonder I wonder if it's the same list. I wonder what the crossover is. So I kind of popped her back an email on that. I was curious about it. I keep meaning to do a carbon star program. I, I think this seems like a very doable list of like 60 stars. And then I think I even looked at one of them last night there, uh, just because there's several that are up currently. And she sent us a really nice screenshot of the ones that are available in the spring sky. I thought that was really nice. Yeah. Yeah. Carbon stars are beautiful. Um, you know, the intensity of the redness varies a bit, but regardless, uh, they're, you know, they're, they're very impressive to look at. Um, regarding the pocket sky Atlas, I think there's 60 stars plotted in the charts, but I don't think that they actually publish the list of carbon stars there as like a separate addendum or appendix. Yeah. So I, I think that like um, Sky Safari might have that built in or some of these observing programs might have that list uh, built into them just to help you, you know, uh, identify which ones are in the Atlas. But um, yeah, putting together some kind of list would be great. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to hear if if listeners have any access to that. I think Berta said she was having to build up her own. I can't import lists into my Sky Safari on my tablet, so I'm a little bit stuck there. I was hoping maybe she could just do an export and send me the the text file. I I just want to take a look and see if they are the same ones in uh, in Rick's list. Love to have Rick on sometime and talk about those carbon stars. Yeah, yeah, that would be uh, really good actually. So, do you want to hear the theme of my observing last night? I do deer poop and lots, lots of deer poop. <laughs> you know, I'm driving out there. I drove out a couple hours before sunset and the road, and, and I, I don't know if, if I even mentioned on the episode last year, but I, I had hit a deer last year. Unfortunately, it was a little bit traumatizing, sort of a, a smaller deer, sort of fortunately for us, un, unfortunate for the deer, no matter how you cut it. Um, hit it in my wife's car. Of course I was driving. So I damaged her car yet again. I think this is the third or fourth time I've done serious damage to her vehicle one way or another. She should take the keys from you. She should. She should. This is not a joke in our house. <laughs> this is very, very tender ground. Let me put it that way. <laughs> I've, I've parked her vehicle like a couple times, uh, Outside, typically we park it inside and, and in two occasions, I've parked it directly under a storm cloud that shot down hail, uh, the size of golf balls at the speed of bullets and, uh, did pretty significant damage to it that way. So, uh, yeah, not so great. Anyhow, we'd hit a deer on, on the road. There was just so many that night. We we're actually, we saw so many deer last, uh, uh early September and I was driving slow. I wasn't even driving the speed limit. I was like 20, 25 K below the limit. And there was just nothing we could do. They were just everywhere. And when I was driving out during the day yesterday, the they're now much bigger <laughs> and you definitely don't want to hit one. Now it's definitely a, a, an evening wrecker. Whereas last year it was a fender bender. This would be a, a, a tow away. If you hit one of them now, they're, they're quite large. 
And they were just wandering all over the road. And I was like, oh, this is terrible. So Mike was coming out. So I called him or texted him. I can't remember. And I said, just be super careful. And I described exactly where they were. And even driving out this morning, they were just like hanging around, like right there, like literally within two or three meters of the road. But uh, on our property, tons and tons of deer poop around. Like I'm going to have to take the shovel out because there's just so much of it. I got to shovel it and put it somewhere. And then uh, I walked around the back and we have a listener, uh, sometimes listener, Jeff, who, who works with Mike and his cabin is, is relatively nearby. And there's a vacant lot in between. And I own one of the other vacant lots that's in between. And I looked up and Jeff builds a lot of really interesting stuff. And he's always working on different projects. And I'm looking up in this field. I'm like, Jeff build now. And it looks like these weird little posts and he works in the grain business too. And I thought, is he like storing like packs of grain up there? It's like really weird looking stuff. And then I, I saw one of them move and it was just a field full of deer lying down. So there was like 12 or 13 deer up there or something. And I was like, oh, we used to have the first year we were out there, there was two or three. The next year there was like five or six. And now it's, there's like a, there's actually a herd of deer and my property is not that large. Like our lots are good sized little lots, but considering there's actually a herd of deer out there is it's a little bit concerning. Like that's a lot of, like you've seen my land, it's a nice little piece of land, but it's not really meant to have a herd of deer on it and me observing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, um, I'm sure they'll move away a little bit once people start uh, migrating back to cottage country here as you know spring approaches. Hopefully, yeah. I was I was shocked how many there were. So they were all up, and I I can see them from where I observed. They were just on the next rise over, and clearly they've been living on on my uh, my observing site as well. And then when I went out, there was um, fortunately most of the neighbors there. I, I think all the neighbors that are adjacent to me have their lights on. Uh, motion sensors, which is great, but the motion sensors are going off all the time now because there's so many darn deer rounds. <laughs> might have to ask people for a few favors this summer, just because the deer are wandering around so much that the motion lights are just uh, flashing on and off. But there is, there is so much deer poop out there right now. I, I wouldn't even hazard to walk up there at night. It would just be, you would just be sliding. Yeah, anyway, people don't want to hear about that. Looked at Venus. Mm-hmm. Set up at dusk. Mike came out. It's a bit of a heartbreaking story. He he gets his telescope about one third set up and missing one of the truss pull bolts. Oh no! Darn. Yeah, and we think maybe he left it or or it got dropped out where when we were observing there in uh, February. Hmm. On the side of the road. I might try to take a run out there. Um, later today or something, see if I can locate. I know exactly where we were, fortunately. Um, and it, and he was sort of set up on the side of the road. I'm sure if, uh, if he dropped it there, it would probably still just, just be sitting right there, but yeah, it was unfortunate. So we couldn't set up his 12 inch. He, uh, had his binoculars. So he grabbed his reclining lawn chair, came up on the deck. And then I have my, uh, I set up my five inch Borg. I, I think I sent you a photo of that. Yeah, you did. Yeah. Uh, Nice to see that one out again. Yeah. I I figured I would, I set up the five inch on the deck, which uh, the deck's fairly, fairly stable from there. Totally by myself. It's, it's totally fine. So we were, uh, should have taken turns looking through the five inch, took a look for a whole pile of different stuff that I didn't see. (laughs) Oh, well, 
you never, you, you miss all of the shots you don't take. So it's worth yeah. trying. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah. Just some of the things, I don't know. Did you ever hear of this uh, Hewitt one planetary nebula? Well, when you mentioned it, um, it, it, it struck a memory, but I, I couldn't place it. So I did a quick internet search and then I remembered when this was actually discovered recently and yeah. how people were like, wow, this is the closest nebula to earth. And we've just found out about it now, but it might be like for even astro imagers, it sounds like it's a very difficult ta uh, target. And certainly visually like that would be a, like a, a Holy grail type of uh, target. See my plan for the night, it, it fell apart a little bit, Shane, a little bit because the, the five inch parts were there. So I was good to roll and I, I had anticipated that they wouldn't be. So I had thrown in the uh, little Borg 50 millimeter F5 mm -hmm. because I started thinking about how much of a challenge many people uh, have with Barnard's Loop and some of the other large nebulae. And this one is very large. I think that there's some of the nebulae stretching over a 10 degree field of sky or something like that. There's bright portions that are several degrees across anyway. And I thought, huh, I wonder if it's one of those type of an object where just simply somebody hasn't applied the right tool where maybe uh, the little five inch F5 would work. However, because I got the five inch running, I didn't set up the 50 millimeter. I just, uh, I didn't bother. I uh, hope to do that one day soon. I think it would be worth a shot to see if I can actually get that. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I, was reading about some of the acquisition time and again, just, uh, everything involved, even to image it, uh, has, has it like, have you read of any visual observations of it? I have not. I've heard rumors that people have seen it. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. I thought, why not? Sure. Why not? It's yeah. just always, I always enjoy a challenge and I don't mind failing on a challenge. I know I've observed with lots of people, if they fail, it really bothers them. And, uh, Fortunately, I'm not one of those people. And I had a good observing buddy for a long time, another Mike. And, and, uh, because he would uh, be muttering under his breath, I'll put it that way at not being able to, to locate some things. But I, for me, I'm, I'm totally fine with not seeing things and just getting a field down. Like, like we were chatting with, uh, with Howard. So no, I did not see Hewitt one. It's just off beta sex. If anybody's looking for it, uh, it's just to the east of Beta Sexton and uh, reasonably high in the sky here even. So I thought, hmm, I'll give it a shot. No, couldn't couldn't see it. The other thing I took a look at, and this is the one I mentioned to you, was the uh, Ghost of Jupiter, or NGC 3242. That is a beautiful planetary nebula. Have you ever looked at that one? Do you recall seeing that? I feel like you probably would if you've seen it. Yeah, I think I've seen it uh, when we've been out observing before, but I, again, it's been a long, long time if I have. So I, I don't, again, you know, my, I don't even know if I would have re recorded a note. I know I've never looked for it. If I've, if I have seen it, it would have been through your scope or, or Mike's. This is one of those planetary nebulas, or it's one of those targets. I feel like the ghost of Jupiter, I, I don't observe it every year. Every time I observe it, I always think, why don't I observe this every year? I always think about observing it every year. Maybe it's just, I don't get the conditions or, or whatever. And actually last night when I went to observe it, the clouds filled up the Southern sky and became nearly opaque in the area. And I had to wait for an hour for them to clear out, but eventually they, they did. And we had a good observation of it, but it's so bright that I remember my first view of it through my five inch and I just 
couldn't get over how bright the uh, nebula is. And it looks like a tiny little planetary nebula, even at 18 power in my five inch. Like you can you can pull it out as a planetary nebula without a filter or anything from a reasonably dark sky. And Shane, you should be able to get this from your backyard. Um, I would be really curious okay. to see what you're able to observe just because it is so bright. Hmm. It's, it's magnitude 7.8, but okay. I almost feel like that is low. I, I feel like it's brighter than 7.8. To my eye, it seems brighter than 7.8. Maybe the whole thing is 7.8. Usually, like you have like the integrated magnitude, but uh, I don't know. It it's a very bright little planetary, and it's not even that little. It's extended even even at 18 or 20 power. We put the uh, Lumicon multiple filter selector on last night. It's always a mm. mouthful to say that. I love that piece of gear, though, especially for nebula uh, observing. Just the ease to put a filter in the optical path or remove it or change filters yeah. is wonderful. Yeah. So one of the things I wanted to experiment with uh, last night is that with my five inch, see, I have a large uh, helical focuser on it. And then there's a feather touch that's threaded into the helical focuser. So I have this coarse helical, and then I have the very fine tuning of the feather touch focuser. And what I was playing around with was that the multiple filter selector requires um, the focuser to be shoved in a lot further because it's got a long optical path because it's got a whole business end of a long eyepiece holder combined with the uh, rised bed for the multiple filter selector to throw the filters through. But the Borg is nicely set up for that because it has this large course. And so I, I spent a long time monkeying around with that so that I could have my five millimeter in focus and then be able to also focus the uh, the 32 millimeter um, without having to, to mess around with it too much. So yeah, there was some futzing around to set it up, but I like it because with the Borg and that helical actually allows me to rotate the entire uh, focuser tube assembly. And so that allows me to change the orientation of the eyepiece much easier than in my Takahashi. Oh, okay. Because well, that's, that's really cool. Yeah. The Takahashi just has a fixed focuser. So mm -hmm. uh, you, you can't really rotate that or not very easily. Maybe there's a way, I don't know, but the Borg just does that uh, inherently. It does it very, very well. So it was a lot of fun. We uh, played around with that quite a bit and throwing the filter in and throwing it out to identify the, uh, nebula in the first place well you could see it but then when you push the filter through and you lock that o3 filter in place it just shines like a beacon it's just like a headlight turns on and mike had a lot of fun he hadn't used that device before he had a lot of fun just kind of clicking it in and clicking it out and clicking it in and clicking it out it was pretty cool then we put the five millimeter eyepiece in that gives about 150 power but that uh that filter though it, it was best at the lower powers. Once we get up into 150 or so power, just the view with the eyepiece alone, we we both preferred. I thought it could detect um, some different structure in the nebula at, at that power. Seemed like it took on a different view where the interior had a darker, uh, less nebulous appearance. It had a bit of a ring. It had a bit of a brightening in the center, and then it had a very bright ring around that. And then sort of encompassing that bright ring was uh, just a slightly fainter, but still very bright, large knot feature that extended out all around um, the bright core. 
Okay. Well, that's, that's pretty good observation. Yeah. I, I thought it was good. Now the failure in this observation was that's not what I was trying to observe because I've seen all this before. There's an, a large sort of halo. It's not really the halo of the planetary nebula itself. What it is, it's, it's a large piece of gas. I think that was uh, sloughed off very early on in the death of uh, the star um, when it was just beginning to go through its planetary nebulae process. I think it's like about 20 arc minutes away, maybe further, maybe like a third of a degree or something like that. It's a little bit far away. It, there's a whole shell there, but there is a, a brighter region. And then going back today, I think I was looking in slightly wrong place. And I think the conditions, the sky conditions in that area at that time just weren't as good as they were uh, later on, unfortunately, when it had left that region of the sky. So might might go back to that again, just try to see this uh, this large outer it a halo that's uh, that's some distance from from the planetary nebula proper. I didn't think it looked at all like Jupiter, though. Goes to Jupiter doesn't look like Jupiter. <laughs> <laughs> is it? Is it? Does it have that name just because of the size aspect, or no? I think it's maybe it's one of those ones that uh, they they thought maybe was like a planet or something. I mm-hmm. I don't know. To me. To me, it definitely is is way out of round. Maybe at very low power, at very low power, it looks extremely round. But once you're up into the 150 to 200 power, it's it's nowhere near round anymore. If you have a quality mm-hmm. instrument, it it definitely is showing uh, quite a bit of detail and structure, even in the five inch. Okay. But I'd like to go back and try to see if I can see this large outer halo. I think that would be a neat observation. Yeah, well, and like we said earlier, you don't know until you try, really. So it uh, yeah. it would be neat to see. Yeah, I took a look at the Sombrero Galaxy, uh, put it in low power, and then put 150 power in, and we could definitely see that uh, dark band that cuts across it. That was yep. pretty. I love that. Uh, under the right conditions with the right aperture, that's a galaxy that, to me, anyway, it's it sort of starts to take on that three dimensional mm. uh, image. Yeah. So after we looked at that, we then, I want to go up and in the winter, Mike and I were trying to see IC443, which is the jellyfish nebula up by uh, Propus there yep. in Gemini. Mm-hmm. We we didn't see it then. <laughs> we didn't see it last night. There was this area that, that I thought I saw something from time to time. Mike definitely saw something there. And then I inserted my doubts into Mike's mind and then he could no longer see it. But going back today and, and reviewing images and that sort of thing, what we were looking at was Sharpless 249. And because it looked so different from uh, what we expected IC443 uh, to appear like, then I think uh, we just determined we weren't seeing it. But we were in the Sharpless 249 area. We were just a little bit further to the uh, to the east, I think, than, than what we needed to be. Uh, we needed to be just right off... Uh, Propus, but uh, yeah, we couldn't see it. I had the three different filters in there, the H beta, UHC, and O3, and I was cycling through them. Uh, the Sharpless region, I, I think we were kind of sort of seeing it, but uh, we didn't see that jellyfish uh, nebula, unfortunately. Hmm. Well, you know, maybe it was just the night. Um, you know, some of these things, everything was like seeing was good last night, but transparency was so-so. I think we had some volcanic ash I saw uh, on a... Uh, an earlier weather report in the day that um, this wave of ash was kind of coming across Canada and the Northern U S. Huh? Well, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. 
So we decided to uh, take a break at that point because we were just getting frustrated. And it's like, this isn't our job. Like, this is just for fun. Like, we're going to go inside and warm up for 10 minutes. So we did that. And I had the place uh, nice and warm. I had it heated up to over 20 degrees. Oh, nice. Yeah, it was nice to go in and sit in and and have a chat and a snack. And then we went back out and said, all right, we're just going to go and we're going to go galaxy crazy. And we're just going to see how many galaxies that we can see. We've done the hard work for the night. We're just going to hang out with some galaxies. And we took a look at M87 and Markarian's chain. And uh, we looked at many, many Leo and Virgo galaxies. We had three different fields where we counted 10 or more galaxies and then uh, looked at several other galaxies. So we were probably way up in there in the in the 40 uh 40 galaxy range anyway i think so we looked at a lot of objects last night oh wow yeah that's uh well some of those are like you know spring season is galaxy season and some of those galaxy clusters are just phenomenal with you, you know you just trip over them as you're panning through the sky yeah and that's all we did we didn't we didn't really I- identify any we, we looked at the eyes i think um, M87 looked at, you know, probably all the messies, but I don't know. We were just like, okay, we're just going to look at as many galaxies as we can possibly see in like 20 or 25 minutes or whatever it was. So yeah, that, that's what we did. And that was, uh, that was a pretty fun experience. Yeah. That's awesome. Sounds like a great night. Yeah. Then, uh, Mike had been looking at M44 earlier. It was in a bad spot for me. I got a couple trees there on the front of the place, but, uh, I moved the telescope towards the end as it was coming around one of the trees. And we took a, took a look at M44, the beehive in cancer, man, that is a crazy naked eye object from a dark site. It just like mm-hmm. this huge, um, bright ball, you know, in amongst a couple stars, just fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's beautiful. It really is. Yeah. And then, uh, so that was, that was it. Mike took off. I went to bed. I woke back up, uh, two hours later, I wasn't sleeping well and I decided I would go out and tear down. And then when, then when I went out, I was like, Oh, it's pretty good. So I, I just stood and took a look at, uh, like, uh, off Eucus and Libra and, uh, Scorpius rising. And yeah, it was pretty, pretty nice, uh, pretty nice uh, late evening, but I was so bagged by that point and thinking that I got to get up and, uh, get in to do, uh, this podcast here this morning. So I just decided to go back to bed. So that was it. But I, when I get up this morning though, I, I watched the moon, uh, I saw the moon, uh, at like quarter after seven. Mm-hmm. So that was like right. I mean, the sun was up, I think, and I could see the moon. So that was something. Oh, cool. We're just about towards the end of this. I'm getting your messages there. I guess you didn't put their phone on vibrate before this. Is Are those the reports from the uh, ash cloud? Yeah. Yeah. Just showing the ash cloud moving. Oh, wow. So I guess, yeah, we definitely have some of that. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. So that might've factored into some of the observing last night. Yeah, it could have. I wonder how long that's going to hang around for. Well, I think it, uh, to be like perfectly candid, I'm not even sure if it was overhead when we were observing, like that was earlier in the day, but, um, never know how quickly that stuff moves. So I, somebody who's not dealing with an ash cloud right now is Clark. He's down in Alice Springs going to see the hybrid eclipse had a sort of a pre-observing report from him. That was pretty cool. Yeah. Always love to hear from Southern, uh, well, any kind of Southern observing report from the Southern hemisphere is, is amazing. So I hope he keeps them coming. Yeah, I hope that uh, he gets some clear skies for the hybrid eclipse, and I can't wait to hear his observing report of that. I think he's getting on a cruise to take a look at it. Yeah, that's awesome. 
And you have something coming from Australia. What's uh, what's coming your way? Yeah, big thanks to Wade. Uh, so we've talked about this a few times. Wade is a listener of the podcast. And quite a while ago, Wade sent us a photograph of a flashlight he built because you and I sort of complained that there's not an ideal flashlight out there for astronomy. So he built this one that has... Uh, an amber LED, red, and white. And you can toggle any one or all of those on at the same time if you wish, I think. Um, Be like an ABBA concert. Yeah, yeah, right. So he also put on a like a dial or a potentiometer to vary the um, the brightness of the LEDs and it runs on a nine volt. Um, so I can't remember if we asked or he offered. I'm not sure the genesis of that. But anyway, uh, he said, hey, if you guys want a, like a prototype of one of these things, I, you know, I'd be happy to make one for you. But I, he, he wants our feedback. And I think he's maybe considering making a few more of these and, yeah. you know, selling them potentially. So anyway, it's shipped. So uh, looking forward to receiving that and, and playing around with uh, the Wade flashlight. Yeah, from Australia, free Huntsman spider with every order right here. Oh, perfect. Yeah, wonderful. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Those things are, ooh, have nightmares. All right. Um, I've got something coming, but, you know, I think when we get this stuff, hopefully they arrive about the same time. We should do some unboxing videos. Sure. Yeah, we could do that. That'd be fun. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right, Shane, anything else to add before I collapse into a heat of my own exhaustion? That is all, Chris, from me. All right. Well, dear listeners, thank you for listening. And please do us a favor and share this show with other stargazers you know. We really appreciate it when you uh, send out a post on social media or on your club forum or just even emailing your friends about the uh, Actual Astronomy podcast. We really appreciate that. You can always reach us at actualastronomy at gmail.com. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com. <laughs>